Hi, Hi everyone. everyone. I'm John. And I'm Georgia. And we're here inside your ears to talk about the mac and cheese of movies. This, this is, is Comfort, Comfort Films. Films. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 44 of the Comfort Films podcast. We're going to be coming at you with a double dune today. We're going to be talking about the 1984 David Lynch film Dune, as well as the 2021 Denis Villeneuve movie Dune. So we've got a lot to cover, and we listen to the audiobook. So, I mean, we've got so much Dune that we have, like, sand pouring out of every orifice. <laughs> I have uh, the shy halud coming out of one eye socket and going no. into the other. No, but they're oh my nice. God. You would be giant if you had that. They're not small. But they're I these are like the the baby shy halloo. Okay, well. This is like nurturing them. I'm friendly with them. These are the little maggot versions. Oh man, I wouldn't think of them as maggots. Yeah, but that's what they are. They're like little worms. They're funny. They are they are sand whales is what I see them as. Yeah, but you still don't want them in your eyes. Well, I guess that was a little dark, maybe more of a Halloween episode type of comment. <laughs> but, you know, I just want to let you guys know that we are on Arrakis, uh, figuratively and literally, out here in Los Angeles in the desert. We've been going through a ridiculous heat wave, getting up to 100 degrees and over every day. Yeah. Just looked at the weather, and that is not going to break until Friday, next Friday, when uh, we're going to get to 95. Woohoo! Yeah, that's going to be like a chilly day out here for us. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's because we have ingested so much Dune content <laughs> that we've actually influenced the weather, or if it's just, you know, the wonders of climate change, which this movie slash book slash other movie is actually an allegory about, so... Again, a Dune tie-in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've been in here for about three minutes, and we have also both lost enough sweat to fill a glass already. So it's going to be, you know, a, a hot episode. John was wishing that we had still suits yes. earlier. Yes, but um, drinking your own, like, feces. Reclaimed water. Yeah, yeah, like, feces, fecal matter, sweat, that kind of like really takes the shine off of the you know the hydration well and in the book they're pretty gross with how they're talking about how it tastes to drink this water oh, man like it's like musty or something i'm like yeah i think i'd leave the planet and go somewhere else arrakis is not for me no and it's it reminds me of water world yes where kevin costner like took a piss <laughs> And then drank it. And yeah. I was like, oh my God. And isn't it crazy? Waterworld, the exact opposite of Dune. Yes, right? but somehow people still drink their own pee. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I would think that there'd be a way to distill the ocean water. I guess I, I would think that would be easier than distilling water from your own pee. But apparently not. I mean, Waterworld is a different story, though. We'll probably never discuss that here. <laughs> I think, though, that Dennis Hopper would have really brought some fun chaos to House Harkonnen. Well, hey, I mean, and David Lynch worked with him in Blue Velvet, so I think he could have done something pretty magical. Yeah, this. yeah. Um, he's he's kind of a chaotic nut, so yeah, I could see him in, in House Harkonnen. He would be great there, you know? I could see him, like, just smoking a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> 
You know, no one really does that. No one smokes in this film. I would love that. Dennis Hopper just getting off an ornithopter, throwing his his cig on the ground and being like, this whole planet's an ashtray. <laughs> That's what he would say. Just, yeah, just a real disdain for Arrakis. <laughs> you know, and I would also love it if he had like some uh, anti-establishment rhetoric in there as well. You know, bring us back to the Easy Rider days. Sounds good. I uh, love it. Right? Pop quiz, hot shot. <laughs> What's the spice made out of? Sandworm poop. Now you know. I, I think that, yeah, he would love that. He would love, <laughs> he would love the shy halud or the sandworms. <laughs> he would love them. Well, he would love them. Anyway, I guess we should probably stop making our own fan dune. Dennis Hopper Dune and move on to the real Dune. So, as you mentioned, we did actually listen to the audiobook of Dune. We did. Um, and just quickly before we get into everything deeply, um, the 2021 film, which I'm guessing more people have seen because it's fairly recent and it won a lot of awards, very deservedly so, which we'll discuss probably later. Um, that one only covers about half of the actual original Frank Herbert book. So there's going to be a Dune 2 next year that comes out that kind of takes the second half. David Lynch collapsed the whole thing into one film, um, which I think he didn't have enough time. I mean, I think working at us 2 is better because you get to like address a lot of the crazy points because it's a long book. Oh, yeah. It's a very long book. And David Lynch lost control of the final cut. He didn't yeah. have it. So he is disappointed by the film because there are things that he says he's very happy with. But in the end, he didn't get the film that he was looking for. And when we watched the Blu-ray, we saw some of the deleted scenes. Yeah. And there was some really nice stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, I think that he is kind of cutting himself short a little bit because... I don't think it's like a failure of a movie, which I think he thinks, but I can see how they had to turn some things into just exposition um, and kind of shorten things up to make it fit this two hour, two and a half hour time frame. Whereas I think that there's a lot more breathing room in the 2021. Um, so we'll see how it goes with the 2023 Dune 2. Um, if you haven't seen... Um, Dune 1984, or you haven't read the book, or, you know, you don't know what happens in the second half, we're going to try not to be too spoilery um, with that, um, but we probably will say some things that, that aren't in the movie, so it might be a little confusing. I hadn't seen the 1984, and I hadn't read the book, but just living on planet Earth, I knew, like, a lot of stuff about this this property, because it's just very... Uh, influential in the culture, I would say, in pop culture and science fiction. Like, I knew about the spice. I love the spice. I knew what the spice came from. I knew, like, you know, about Paul, you know, being kind of like your Christ figure hero guy. So it's, it's kind of like, even if you don't know everything specifically... You probably kind of can figure it out, my perspective anyway. Yeah, I would say that Dune is something that 
influenced so much. I, I completely agree. I mean, Star Wars, of course. I mean, science fiction, entertainment in general draws on this so much. This came out in 1965, and this is like, you know, the grandfather of science fiction. I mean, the, the, the world building that we have in this story. When I first saw Dune 1984, I was a kid. I rented it, and people talked a lot about how Dune and Star Wars had a lot of similarities. And when I saw Dune, I was very young, and I couldn't process all of it, but I knew that it was a good movie. I could tell. The production design was fantastic. I didn't know it was called production design at the time, but I would have said, yeah, I thought the worms looked great, you know? Well, yeah, a lot of stuff looked really cool there, and they had a very science fiction feel, you know? When you go back and watch the 84 version, it feels very, like, sci-fi movie. Yeah. I mean, it's this is not necessarily a traditional comfort pick. The reason that I wanted to do this one is because when I was a kid, I saw this 1984 film. I knew it was good. Couldn't understand it. We saw the 2021 film in theaters. Blown away. It was incredible. I followed it, but I still felt that I needed more information to get everything out of it. So we went back and we listened to the entire audiobook, which was incredible. And then we watched the David Lynch film, and then we tried to dig in with the special features. Mm -hmm. Then we went to the 2021 film, watched that, and then we dug in with the special features there as well. So we have so much information. That <laughs> Probably we're... too much information <laughs> right now. Like, I almost feel like if I don't hurry up and do this episode, I'm just going to, like, explode, and it'll just be a pile of sand. Yeah, that's how I feel, too. I mean, this was, like, a really smart pick also, John, because of the sand angle. Because we are using this to kind of close out our our Sun and Sand series. Um, and this is the sandiest movie, I think. Sandiest book. you got a planet that's entirely sand. Mm -hmm. You have the sand worms. And, you know, speaking of influential, how many movies have this type of sand worm in them? You know? Oh, yeah. We saw so many. I mean, 1984, we see it in Dune. Then a few years later, we see it in Beetlejuice. And then a few years later, we see it in Tremors. Yeah. I mean, we could have done like almost a full month on sandworm films. I mean, actually, we could if we split Dune into two weeks. Well, and I'm sure there's actually something we're missing. I'm sure there are even more sandworms out there. Those are just the ones that popped for us. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, even just that one aspect of the movie is such a big deal. I mean, it's a classic hero's journey kind of a story. Um, you have this character, Paul Atreides, who is kind of a special person, right? He's the result of years of selective breeding by the Bene Gesserits, which is like this female religious order. And... They're, you know, all wrapped up in the politics of the empire, of this, like, galactic empire. Gosh, do we know any other movies about galactic empires? Hmm. No. <laughs> What's a galactic empire? But the Bene Gesserits are, you know, they control from, like, the shadows by, like, you know, having these children from different bloodlines and then pairing those children up. And, and they only wanted Jessica who's Paul's mother, to have a girl child. 
so that they could marry her to a Harkonnen heir and, you know, continue their plan. But she defied them and had a son. And their whole kind of philosophy is that eventually uh, a, there's going to be a, a boy born to a Bene Gesserit who will be the Kwisatz Adarach, which is like, you know, kind of like, it's not exactly like a savior, but boy, does it feel like it a lot of times, you know, he's very much like a Jesus, you know, type figure who unites all these people to lead them and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but he basically is going to be able to have all of this knowledge that the Bene Gesserit women have not been able to access. So he's going to have, like, all this different knowledge. I don't know why a male can get it when these women can't get it, but it's part of their whole situation. So, okay, we're just going to take it. But, yeah, so that's kind of the deal. Like, he's the result. He's, like, the special person, and that's who the, the whole story is about. He's, like, the only one, the chosen one, the Harry Potter, the Luke Skywalker etc 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 on down the line of the hero's journey type story what's very interesting to note also is that paul atreides mother is lady jessica and lady jessica as you mentioned is part of the Bene jesuit and <laughs> the Bene jesuit have this amazing ability to be able to choose what sex their baby is going to be yes I've never heard of such a thing. It's very interesting. They also have the power to uh, diffuse toxins in their body to uh, make it okay. So they're they're not hurt. But, I, I mean, it's it's a very interesting twist because we have in this story so many religious elements that are put together to make the, this science fiction piece. Just like Star Wars. You know, all the different mixes of religion. You know, I mean, Georgia and I were talking about it early. The Bene Gesserit, you said, were like... Yeah, uh, the Bene Gesserit's order sounds like Benedictine monks and Jesuits, almost. Yeah. I'm guessing that's kind of where he got, like, the name from. A lot of the other words and names and things in this in this book come from, like, Arabic root words. Um, so he combined that. He also, you know, is dealing, like I said, with this kind of idea about climate change and ecology. Um, I think the reason for the Arabic root words is because we're dealing with the spice being kind of like a stand-in for oil. So it's about the dependency of the world on oil, which is only able to be found in this one place. I mean, and, and people are taking advantage of the people who live in that place to get the oil. So, I mean, it's really well done. It's really, it's philosophically complex, in my opinion. Like, not only with the world building that he did, which is very intricate. Very I much. mean, in both films you see it, in the book you see it even more. Um, it's very, very detailed uh, with all the different planets and the different politics um, that are going on in this galactic empire. And it all becomes part of kind of that world building of the science fiction. And I think that we also see this in the two different films. 
when it comes into like their production design, they have to choose things in such a detailed way. And if they're different, they're very different movies with very different visions, but they're both very complete um, in, in the fact that, you know, they have to drill down and do all these details because the book is so detailed. And it is like this combination of Eastern religion, Western religion. There's even some like nature religion going on. I think when you get into what's going on with the Fremen. And I do think we see that like in Star Wars as well. Because you have like your hero who's kind of feels like a, a Christ figure. And you, at the same time you have these Bene Gesserits who sound like nuns or something and their their name sounds like monks and their practice is very eastern in my opinion they do a lot of meditation type things um there's a lot of like body control involved they fight in the weirding way which is kind of like i mean <laughs> In, in the David Lynch movie, he made them have these modules to fight with the weirding way because he said he didn't want it to be like sci-fi kung fu because that's kind of what it feels like otherwise. Um, and in the book, it kind of does feel like that. It kind of feels like they're practicing some sort of martial art, I think. Whereas they play that up in the 2021 movie. Well, we also have with the Benny Jesuit, we have the voice. That is another skill that they have. And that, to me, makes me laugh because I went to Catholic school growing up. And when you got in trouble with a nun, the nun had a very commanding voice. You know, they would tell you, pick that up, be quiet, you know, <laughs> these things. And so it's like the idea that they actually put a name to it, the voice, is is hilarious to me because it's like any parent or any any figure of authority you know they have this voice they have this this control over you and that's something where lady jessica from the beginning of the film is working with her son to develop so that he can have this power as well and just like the jedi you know it's just like he needs to learn his ways he needs to build up all of these skills so that he can face these battles. I mean, we saw in the Star Wars films what happened when Luke wasn't fully trained and he went to face Darth Vader. He got housed out, man. Yeah. He lost a hand. He was lucky his friends were there to pick him up. I mean, I don't have many friends that would pick me up, like, on an antenna up in the sky. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's pretty cool. And also, you know, again, we're dealing with you know, reading people's thoughts, like going deep. I mean, with Leia and Luke Skywalker, they had that ability to talk to each other that way. They had that telepathy. And, you know, it's not exactly telepathy in Dune. I feel like it's it's more than that. And a lot of the knowledge that the people get in Dune, the religious folks, is they they take this spice and the spice seems like a hallucinogenic, like uh, like an LSD, where they just have these images flood their minds, and it's they they are able to see all the possibilities that their timeline can take. So that's Paul's like reaction to the spice. So like the Benny Jesuits, to me, they practice almost like a 
a complex form of like intuition. Like they are able to intuit what people are thinking or what people are going to do. And they have a very high level of um, success at that. And Paul has been trained in the Bene Gesserit ways. So he has like that high level intuition that he can operate on and use. But then when he hits the, when he gets to Arrakis and he ingests the spice, for him, it like affects him differently. And that kind of goes back to the hero's journey idea that it's like, you know, something that is ideal for just this one person. So like other people take the spice and I think, I feel like the spice is defined in a kind of a odd way. Like it is a hallucinogen and they drink it with alcohol at one point in the book and like have like a lot of visions and weird stuff happening. But with Paul, it's kind of like it activates his powers kind of. So it's like before he was like a low level, you know, intuitive. He had, you know, different skills that he learns because he's like a, a noble. He's a member of the nobility. So he's like been trained on all these different things and he's very knowledgeable. But once he gets a hit of the spice, he really like goes over the edge with being able to like have all these visions. Some of them are accurate. Some of them are not accurate. And that's what gets confusing for him, right? Because he's like, he thinks like something's going to happen and he totally believes in it. And then it's like, there's a slight difference from what he saw. But also the spice helps people travel. Like it's a hugely important part of uh, interstellar travel. And without it, interstellar travel can't exist, which I don't think is ever explained well in any form. Well, that's actually the point I was going to make. So there is uh, the CHOM, which is the trade organization, which is huge. And it's this overarching organization that looks over everything. I believe it's mentioned once in the 2021 film. And part of the, the CHOM is the Spacing Guild. And in the Spacing Guild, there are the Guild Navigators. The Guild Navigators need the spice so that they can fold time uh, they can they can fold space so they can travel very quickly it's like faster than light travel and why they need the spice is because they take so much spice that when they're plotting a course they're able to see all the different things that would happen so that they would know which course to take now, this is something I did research on my own. I don't recall if it was it was covered explicitly in the book. I don't remember it being covered explicitly in either film. Um, but that was something I was curious about. Because when they talked about, you know, folding space to do the, this travel and that we needed the spice for that to happen, I wanted to know why. So the guild navigators take a ton of spice yeah i mean this is why this is why i don't think that i wish that the spice could be explained a little bit better because right now i just think about it as people are like tripping balls <laughs> and like jacking up on the spice like it's like mushrooms or something okay 
And it is supposed to be made out of, like, the fungal secretions of the sandworms, which, you know, makes it sound like a psychoactive mushroom. And I'm like, okay, so the guild navigators need to trip out on shrooms so that they can fold space-time and do interstellar travel. I don't know, guys. I don't know. I'm just going to go with you on that, but okay. And then, like I said, different people have different responses to it. Like, the Fremen have so much of it in their bodies because it's like a regular part of their diet and it's, you know, just in them that their eyes have changed color to be like blue on blue. Okay. And again, like the first time in the 2021 movie, the first time that Paul is like really exposed to the spice is when he gets out of the the ornithopter and because the the spice mining facility is in trouble, right? And it needs to be lifted by the carrier, but the carrier malfunctions and so anyway, Paul gets out and he's supposed to be telling people to come to the plane and he just takes a hit of like the air which has the spice in it and he's just like, "Whoa." And like you know, totally, like, goes off, you know, into some other place inside his head and almost gets killed by the worm, right? So, it's like, I don't know. This The spice is a little confusing to me. I enjoy the fact that they say just being on the planet at all, the spice is in the air. So, you're just basically flying when yeah. you're on Arrakis. And I guess that the people that have been there for a while just can handle it better. Yeah, you know? well, I guess they have a tolerance because, like, otherwise they'd just be high AF walking around every day doing their business. But, like, I don't know. I, I think that it's a little weird with the spice. Maybe it's my problem that I just don't understand it well enough. But for me, I do think of the spice as being, like, yeah, shrooms. It's a heavy-duty substance, it, it, and it does seem to impact everyone differently, like you said. And it's, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, sometimes I feel like it's coffee. Sometimes I feel like it's a, it's a heavy psychotropic drug, you know? Like, something is happening, you know, you're seeing these visions. Um, and it's, it's like a bad trip sometimes with Paul. Because he sees his own death. It's just like a trip gone bad. So it also gets interesting because, like you said, these visions that you get during these spice journeys in your mind can't be necessarily trusted because they're not always accurate. And Paul finds that he can actually change. You know, he can change the future. Well, that's a big part of the 2021 movie. To me, I thought it did a really good job with this because he keeps having visions of this Fremen named Jameis who he seems to be learning from and this guy seems to be his friend and like seems to be telling him all this stuff and then like at the end of the movie he has like to face off in a fight to the death with Jameis and he kills him. Yeah. So like he never gets to actually know this guy outside of these visions and it's really strange, you know, and it's weird to Paul because it kind of signals to him these visions aren't immutable. It's, you know, different options that you could have. 
it's it's more like to help him understand and like in the book as he goes on like he gets to the point where he doesn't know what's real and what's not like i don't know if they'll explore that in dune too but i thought that was interesting because it's like he wakes up and he doesn't know if he's in reality or in a dream or if the things that he thinks are real are real or they're not real because it's a future image that he had seen or you know it's it's weird. He's just so spiced up. <laughs> well, you know, something else that I wonder, and this is just thinking ahead to Dune Part 2, the film, and I don't know if it's going to happen, but part of me wonders if when we get to Dune Part 2, we're going to jump ahead in time a little bit, and we're going to see an older Paul. You know, at this time, he's Paul Mwadib, you know, mm -hmm. and... He's going to be, I, I'm thinking, a, a little bit rougher. He's out there in the desert, you know, and everyone on the crew looks like they've been out in the desert for a long time. Yeah, I mean, that's, the Fremen live there. So, yeah. like, that's where they have been their whole lives. And, you know, this is a big facet of the films and the books, is that these people are, like, natives of Arrakis, They've been treated like garbage by the Harkonnens for a very long time, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the Harkonnens see them as just expendable, you know. They just want to exterminate the entire, you know, race. But these people have actually been living in the desert, and they've learned how to control the sandworms. They've learned how to, like, you know, pull moisture from the air. Yeah. I mean, again, if we want to talk about Star Wars... These people are actually moisture farming, like Luke and his Uncle Owen, the alcoholic. <laughs> Uncle Owen. <laughs> the angry alco. The meanest man in science <laughs> fiction. But yeah, I mean, like, that's how deep the Star Wars connections go. You know, we even have moisture farming. You know, it's, of course, like, I, I feel like pretty much any time you have a story where, like, there's, like, this chosen one. You, you're going to find similarities. Like, you could be like, Dune and Lord of the Rings are alike because of Frodo and Paul. Okay, sure. I mean, it's there. This is, like, the classic type of hero story. But with Star Wars, it, it does go a lot deeper. And even, like, with the prequels, how they got so political. Right. Like, Dune is very political. Like, it's all about these noble houses who have beef with each other like the atreides have beef with the harkonnen and vice versa and like pretty much everyone is at their mercy of you know at the mercy of the the beef between these houses it's very much it, it very much reminds me of game of thrones definitely with... that's that i you said that and i wouldn't have made that connection but you're so right. Like, Game of Thrones was super influenced by this. Very much. It, it is very much influenced by Shakespeare, Dune. Because you have this grand scale. You have this grand epic. You know, and you have all of these relationships that are very, very twisted. And again, I, I mean, and then to bring Star Wars back into it, we have the reveal that Lady Jessica is a Harkonnen. So it's just like... When Luke learns that Vader is his father. And I know Vader is not like a portly man, but I have to tell you, I really feel like Lord Vader 
and Baron Vladimir Harkonnen are very similar. They're very commanding. They have that commanding presence. And, you know, the Harkonnen don't have, quote, the voice. But, you know, when I think about Star Wars, I think about James Earl Jones doing that Darth Vader voice, that silky smooth voice that is so commanding. Mm-hmm. And it makes me feel like, you know, it's a Richard III type of situation. You have a person that, that's twisted, that, you know, is not necessarily attractive to others, right? But he has something about him that's just so charismatic, so magnetic. With Harkonnen, you know, in this, when we take a look at the Stellan Skarsgård performance, I wouldn't say necessarily that his voice in any way feels silky smooth, but it is commanding in that same way that Darth Vader is. And also, again, I mean, a very simple comparison. You know, he seems to be the boss and he's wearing black robes and, you know, his skin is white. He doesn't look well, just like we know Anakin Skywalker has, you know, a lot of damage to his body from what he sustained. Also, you know, we have Baron Harkonnen bathes in oil to rejuvenate himself. That is like, you know, a machine. Mm. And, you know, depending on which version of the film we look at, when we look at Baron Harkonnen, I mean, we can get, you know, a different, a different version. It's the same result. But when we take a look at the David Lynch film, we have Baron Harkonnen, I would say they went more with an over-the-top performance. And they really came on strong with the disgusting. You know, Mm -hmm. we have all the boils on Harkonnen's face that are being popped. He looks just, he looks unclean. Yeah, always gross. Yeah, and they have him flying around very quickly. And it's just... It's comical. It's like, oh, when pigs fly type of thing is what I get yeah, out of it. Yeah, he's always on the wires and then he's spinning around. And, yeah. And, but he has like these implants and stuff. So I, I think you're right that there is like this element of like him being somewhat machine, mm-hmm. you know. And just like another very simple comparison is the audiobook version that we read the guy who provided the voice, like they, they had a thing where they had a narrator, but sometimes they would have an actor playing the voice of a character. And the guy who voiced Harkonnen sounded like James Earl Jones. Yeah, it was a so fantastic it's, voice. It's like they purposefully chose a guy that sounded like Darth Vader to voice Harkonnen. And it was really cool. Yeah, I think that there's definitely a Harkonnen Vader kind of thing going on. Um, and I think, you know, the Stellan Skarsgård, I, I really like the way that they did it in the 2021 because he is like this grotesque figure, but, and he does use like these suspensors to kind of float around because the whole idea of Harkin is that he's too heavy to be like mobile otherwise. So he has like these servo motors that kind of lift him up and bring him around but there's like a weird grace to it in this movie. Like he's very floaty. Like he floats up and then floats forward. And it's like this silent motion that's creepy and, and weird. Um, and I think that that adds to, you know, the whole thing 
um, with him, with his commanding presence as well. It's like, it's also kind of uncanny and odd that he's able to kind of silently float down the table, you know. Well, and it's also mysterious in the 2021 film. And the 1984 film with Kenneth McMillan, like I said, it's over the top. You know, they bring in, you know, uh, a, a young boy for him. And it's very, you know, terrifying. He kills him. But there's also the super creepy sexual energy attached to it as well. Um, you know, the, the same thing is present in the book. You know, and I believe in the 2021 film, we actually have that later as well. Or did I make that up? I mean, it's probably going to be there if it's not already. I mean, the whole thing with Fade Rauta, which is the um, the heir to the Harkonnen kind of dynasty or whatever we want to call it, is that he's like this young, attractive guy, you know, and yeah. in the in the book, like you know, Harkonnen thinks about Paul and Paul being attractive too, which is kind of gross because we found out it's his grandson. But yeah. I just don't think that would stop Harkonnen. He's pretty low down kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Harkonnen to me gets a little problematic because, um, you know, he's like evil because he's fat and fat because he's evil. Right. So there's like this whole element of him being like this fat, disgusting person and, and he's evil. But I read, like, even more background that, you know, the reason that he's fat and disgusting is because uh, he's cursed. So it's like he's cursed to be fat, and that makes him evil, too. And I don't know. Wow. There's, like, a whole combo of fatness being evil in this that I'm kind of like, all right, all right, move it along. Well, you told me the story that in the 1984 film they called up Orson Welles. Oh, yeah. And they asked him if he wanted to play Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And Orson Welles said, is that the floating fat man? Yeah. And then he hung up on them. Yeah, he just, he didn't want to have any part of it. But, you know, again, Stellan Skarsgård manages to bring a grace to it that brings you to mind of of, uh, Marlon Brando. It makes you think of Marlon Brando and Apocalypse Now. They even have a shot where they have his bald head and, you know, it's like he has some liquid and he's, he's touching his head. And it's, it just reminds you of that scene in Apocalypse Now where Marlon Brando has the water and he's just pouring it on his head and he's touching his head. And you're like, wow, this is like a Marlon Brando performance. And again, in that film, he was wearing black robes in Apocalypse Now. But that, <laughs> what's funny there is that was actually to make him look thinner because in Apocalypse Now... Francis Ford Coppola wanted him to lose weight to play the role. And then Marlon Brando showed up even fatter and uh, demanded a big salary. <laughs> I'll, I'll be like handing him a crown and saying, did you drop this? <laughs> because I love that. Like lose weight. How about if I gain weight instead? And I'm Marlon Brando. So you have to deal with it. I mean, Marlon Brando, problematic man. However... I could see him playing Harkonnen in both the 84 and the 2021 versions of this because I don't think he would have any problem going over the top and like being, you know, swung around on wires. It would have been kind of like a Jor-El kind of a situation. Oh, yeah. Where where he wanted to be a floating green bagel in Superman. Love that. That's a different story that we'll bring back if we ever do Superman. 
Um, but I can also see him bringing like the gravitas that would be needed in 2021. Well, and Stellan Skarsgård was able to channel that type of gravitas in the performance. And we saw in the interviews that he was thrilled to play this role because he was able to just find this commanding presence. And it was so funny that the director was like, yeah, Stellan Skarsgård is great, but, you know, he scares me. You know, <laughs> he's a very nice man, but, you know, I'm, I'm terrified. I really loved that. I love that Denis Villeneuve said that because yeah. it's just like, directors, they're just like us. <laughs> Scared by Skarsgårds. He, well, he's just such a fantastic performer. And there is a thousand percent commitment. They yeah. talked about the, you know, the makeup, the prosthetics they had to put on him. And it took seven hours. And they said that he never complained. He never cared. He just, you know, went ahead and he did the work and he did a great job. Yeah. And everyone was just uniformly impressed. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting because, you know, you think about, oh, they have to go through all this time in the chair and everything. But what I don't always think about is like once they've gone through all that, like they've been through seven hours of makeup. Yeah. They have, you know, pounds and pounds of latex on. Yeah. And then they have to go act. Yeah. And, like, the whole thing was that they said, you know, if it wasn't for him being such an amazing professional actor, like, not only would he not be able to act through all of that stuff, but also he wouldn't be able to, like, keep up his energy and humor and stamina and everything through that. And everyone, everyone just said, like, how he was just such a pleasant and great person to be around, yeah. even though they knew how hard he was working and how tough it was for him. Well, we saw him, like, joking around when he was sitting in that oil bath. Yeah. And it was funny because, you know, he's still imposing. He's yeah. still imposing. You're like, whoa, whoa. And, I mean, they also had that 1984 with Kenneth McMillan. They had all these heavy prosthetics on him as well. So I, I think that, you know, with anyone that ever takes on this role, this is such a task. Yeah, it's physically, physically difficult. And then, you know, mentally difficult as well, because you have to bring a whole lot of evil and not a lot of explanation for it. I mean, he's just kind of born bad. Um, you know, the Harkonnens are this bad group of people. Like, they've been exploiting this. Uh, they run Arrakis. They've run Arrakis until the beginning of Dune. Um, and when it gets turned over to the Atreides family, but they've been running it as their fief and they've been, you know, exploiting workers there. They treat people like garbage and it's all about just increasing the spice yield and making more money because they want power and, and having the control of the spice because Arrakis is the only planet that it comes from that is like a very powerful position to be in and having that kind of taken away and given to the Atreides is kind of like a huge deal for the Harkonnens. Like Baron Harkonnen, you know, and the Emperor Shaddam, I think is his name. Um, they kind of have a thing going and it's all kind of to get rid of the Atreides because they're too powerful. Like, it's very Game of Thrones. Like, back to what you said. Yeah. It's very Game of Thrones. Like, you don't know why people are doing what they're doing, but you can be certain that they have ulterior motives that aren't 
you know, completely visible to everyone. Well, and also to bring it back to the ecological angle and the special features, they talked about the Harkonnen and their planet Gady Prime. They have completely destroyed the atmosphere. They have just made it just this terrible planet, just this bleak, black, smoky planet where nothing can grow. And, you know, they are businessmen. They are people that are interested in the bottom line. So the Harkonnens very much represent the evil corporations, the people that just, you know, destroy a planet and say, hey, let's just go find a new planet. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, a, it's an interesting commentary when we see that. And again, to think in 1965, Frank Herbert w- was thinking about that. And now, you know, water is important. Corporations are buying bodies of water. Yeah. So it's, it's like, They're wow. trying to control the resources because mm-hmm. that's what's ending up being scarce. And it's pretty scary. Yep. I mean, it's very prescient, you know, for Herbert to have envisioned all this. And, you know, it's not happening thousands of years in the future. It's happening now. But, you know, that's the other thing. Like, we think about, you know, history goes in these cycles. And and people, are no matter what species of people, are the same no matter what, you know, situation they're in, it seems like. You know, the for good and evil, you know. The Harkonnens just seem to be something that you can talk about forever just because it, it feels like the ultimate villain, the ultimate evil. And it's a family where everyone is bad, right? We have, you know, Rabin, the beast, awful, yeah. right? And then we have Fade, who we haven't even seen yet. In the 2021 film, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's a different kind of Parkinson, right? right? Like Beast and... and uh Baron are kind of both like these imposing, physically imposing beings. Baron uh, is obviously more mentally strong and, and, you know, devious politically, whereas Rabin is kind of just like the muscle on the ground. You know, he's on Arrakis, like running things a lot of times and has no qualms about, you know, destroying people, uh, which he does just crazy left and right um but then you have fade routha who is the person that baron has uh chosen to be his successor and he doesn't have the same body type you know in the 1984 film fade was sting yeah and also we should mention the 2021 film the beast rabin is dave bautista yeah you know that that seems to be a denis villeneuve favorite because we also saw him in Blade Runner 2049. True. Um, You know, and Dave Bautista, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy, you just think about that. And speaking of those connections, the DP on this is Greg Fraser, who also shot Rogue One. He's also worked on The Mandalorian, and uh, he was also uh, the DP on The Batman, the Matt Reeves film. And I think you mentioned that uh, Sharon Duncan Brewster, who plays Kynes in the 2021, mm-hmm. was also in Rogue One. That is correct. Neat. I like it. I like that you see these people kind of doing, you know, working together in different different ways. And then we both really liked um, Duncan Brewster as the Kynes character. 
who in the book and the 1984 film is uh, a guy. Mm-hmm. Max von Sydow played the role in the 84 and was one of our favorite, you know, lo- like less used characters in that. Um, and very good character in the book as well. Mm-hmm. I really liked it. But in the 2021 version, Sharon Duncan Brewster takes it, comes at it from a different angle, and, and I love it. Yeah, you know? she really makes it hers. It is, and it's something where, you know, Max von Sydow, you put anyone against Max von Sydow, and I'm going to tell you, you know, nine times out of ten, maybe ten times out of ten, I'm going to say, <laughs> hey, hey, you know what I mean? Yeah, they're going to come up short, but in this case, I felt like she was so unique with her take on it, and mm-hmm. it was just so believable. Because this character, the reason I find Kynes interesting is because Kynes is not a Fremen, but Kynes lives among the Fremen, and we find out even more about that later on. Um, But in this 2021 film, we find out that she's there. She's mistaken for a Fremen by Paul because she has the blue eyes um, from the Spice and living out, you know, there. But she's actually a climatologist who's trying to, you know develop the planet to actually have water and you know be more sustainable um but you know the fact is people really don't want that to happen because the spice comes from the desert and if they you know make the desert grow of course it will be better for the fremen and the native people but it will not be better for the people who profit off of the spice yeah and it's also to her credit that she is such a good actor because she's able to handle all of the exposition with the still suit. And Max von Sydow did the same thing. Both of these actors, so skilled, so skilled, because they made exposition like butter. I loved it. I wanted more. I'm like, all right, let's get a little bit more. And then Kynes has to take them on a tour of the planet, right? Yeah. Has to explain about the carry-all and what's happening there and that there's a sandworm coming. We get a lot of exposition with the Kynes character. And when you're able to make me so interested in both films and in the book, when you are really, generally speaking, a device of exposition. It's impressive. It sure is. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a credit to Frank Herbert again, too, because... You know, he's doing so much world building and it's so unique Mm -hmm. what he's writing here, but it does have to be explained sometimes. And that's like a whole big rule, right? Just show, don't tell. Right. But in this, like you can't get around telling some things because showing takes a whole lot more pages than telling. And if he had to show everything, you know, we've already got like a 600 some on page book. We'd have like a you know 7,000 page book we had to show every single thing so he comes up with the idea to do it with this character of Kynes who's a really likable character an interesting character who has conflicting loyalties and I love that I think that it was really well handled and it ends up being a favorite character for you and me yes in both films well Vel Neuve has a real talent for making it visual Heck yes. And so we don't need that dialogue. First thing that comes to mind is the scene with Paul and the Reverend Mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Gomjabar scene. Right. Put your hand in this box. And the 1984 film, 
while, you know, Kyle MacLachlan hand is, has his hand in the box, he's Paul, in the 1984 film, the Reverend Mother is explaining, you know, what's happening, what sensation he feels on his hand, what pain it is. And then in the 2021 film, that exposition is removed, and we simply see the face of Timothy Chalamet and his reaction. And the amazing Charlotte Rampling mm. playing the Reverend Mother. Yes. Who, you know, she tells him a little bit about what's going on. But, like, you want to talk about intimidating. I kind of want to see her facing off with Harkonnen. Yeah. Like, that would be, like, a battle of the ages. Because the two of them are, like, cold, cold, cold. And they would, like, take each other out. I don't know. That would be, like, nuclear with the <laughs> two of them. But I love that scene, and it really just shows you how good Chalamet is in this part because he shows you the pain hmm. really, really well. I mean, it's, I think that was kind of the first thing that made me kind of sit up and take notice when we were watching this at the theater because, you know, it is really difficult if you don't have a background on this to kind of get into the story. Yeah. But once, you know, you see that scene with the Gom Jabbar and you're like, oh, I mean, like, then you're like, okay, I get it. Like, this guy, you know, he's going to have to go through some things to prove himself. And this is kind of just step one. Yeah, it's the beginning. Well, also in the 1984 film, the openings, you know, the, the different of the 1984 film and the 2021 film, vastly different. And the David Lynch film, we have exposition at the beginning that is expertly delivered by Virginia Madsen, who plays Princess Irulan, who has not shown up yet in our new Dune cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and she just lays out the scene so we know where we are. We actually have a graph that comes up that shows us four of the planets, and we're understanding, you know, this happens here. You know, this is Arrakis. You know, this is where the spice is. This is Gady Prime. This is where the Harkonnen are. This is Kaitain. This is where the Emperor lives. And this is Caladan. And this is the present home of House Atreides. So, I mean, they give you the, this, this visual aid, which I found very helpful. And Virginia Madsen delivering this three, three-and-a-half-minute monologue, I have never in my life seen a close-up of someone with just a space background be so engaging and it's the opening of the movie but it also interestingly calls back to the book because princess Irulan is has written all these histories um and gatherings of quotations and things of the muadib which we don't know who that is at the beginning of the book right but she's you know sharing the wisdom and the history of the muadib and this is something that they have at the beginning of every chapter so having Irulan come in and kind of introduce the history and the background is is a really cool callback to the book and, again, handled really, really well. Yeah, it's excellent. These films just, they go different ways. And then the 2021 film, we see through the eyes of the Fremen what's happening on Arrakis. Mm -hmm. So, it, and again, there isn't as much dialogue there as much as we're actually seeing what's happening. Yeah. You know, we're seeing the, the Harkonnen, we're seeing the spice production, we're seeing, you know, the struggle that they have on their planet, the battles. Um, it, it's a much different take and also 
Excellent. So, I mean, when you have source material as strong as this, you can really go so many different ways. And again, you know, we have Zendaya in the 2021 version. Incredible. Yes, playing Chani or Chaney. Some people call her Chaney, but I think John and I are going to go with Chani because we just like it better. The 2021 version, she they call her Chani. Um, I guess Chaney was her was Herbert's choice, but it sounds too much like Lon Chaney or Janie or yeah, like a Bruce Springsteen yeah, song, yeah. hanging out with Janie down on Arrakis. No, <laughs> right? I mean, we're not Getting going to the river, worm, riding our sandworms, <laughs> riding sandworms in the street. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Speaking yeah. of sandworms, yeah, let's talk sandworms between 1984 and 2021 quick. So, I think sandworms look great in both movies, mm-hmm. and that's saying something for 84, because obviously they did not have, you know, the same technology uh, that we that we have today to generate these sandworms, but they look really cool, and they honestly look pretty similar. Um, I think you had mentioned before, early on in this episode, about the sandworms in 2021 version being kind of like the whales of the sand, Mm -hmm. because they have like these baleen mouths, and they're supposed to be eating like microbes in the sand, and that's what the people envisioned, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, in In the 84 version, I feel like they look more like the Sarlacc pit from Star Wars. Where they kind of have this gullet with these gross teeth in it, which is pretty cool, too. Um, But, you know, overall, I think they're pretty similar and pretty cool. The mouth is what's different. In the older film, it's like you have three flaps that open. And, you know, we see that. And with the 2021 version, it's just like a tube that that can just open and close. There aren't any flaps. And it looks like an eye sometimes when it's like wide open. But it has like those kind of hair, kind of baleen, I don't know, threads around the outside. And then there's like actually a gross little gullet like in the middle. Which also was used for communication. Which I thought was brilliant. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit with the sound, uh, in the 2021 version, which is really cool. But before we move on from the 1984, like, I just want to talk a little bit more about, like, what they did, you know, the technology that they had and what they used. Mm -hmm. I mean, we thought that the shields were interesting in the 84 version, too, because now, so people have, like, this personal shield that they can activate and wear, And in the current one, it's kind of like they have a ring, they push a button, it kind of creates like this invisible bluish kind of barrier around them that kind of turns red when they're under attack. In the 84 version, it kind of creates like this box around the person that looks kind of weird, you know, especially to my eyes now. I think in 1984, I would have thought this was super cool. Um, but it, it, it looks kind of like, I think you were saying like Atari or something. Yeah, it very much makes me think about an Atari game. And, you know, we were with video games in their infancy at that point. And I would play basketball games that were just stick figures. And I would think it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. Yeah. And this just reminds me almost like uh, of Tron. 
you know, because we had these kind of boxier glowing figures in the film. So that that's what I, I felt like with this. I thought it was very cool for the time and it reflected what we were doing. These are the games that we would play. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there was a game called Breakout and it was just this brick that would just slide back and forth on the ground and you would bounce this square ball up into the air to break all of the the stuff that was up there you know so it's like it it really reflected the generation yeah and the newer film definitely reflects the generation as well because this is more of a technologically advanced world that we live in and i mean you could say that i guess of any time if we go forward 10 years that'll be more technologically advanced but for right now, I feel that the culture is very interested in cool things, smooth things, slick things. Yeah. You know, you just want something that is is discreet, you know, like maybe you don't want people to know your shield is up, <laughs> you know, like, you, you know, you want to have that. Well, when the Baron shields himself right before Leto releases like the poison gas, mm -hmm. it's very discreet. It's like he just kind of as an afterthought is like, hmm, this seems a little weird, hits the shield button. You know, yeah, and and yeah, it is something where you know it, maybe you could kind of have it on and people wouldn't necessarily know unless they're like hitting you. But I thought the shields were pretty cool in the '84 for the time, and yeah. also I kind of wish they had done more with them because I think it was only like the one scene with Gurney and uh, Paul practicing. Well, there was so much in the 1984 film that they were doing that was ahead of its time. There was that machine that Paul was training with. Oh, yeah, that was super cool. And that was a practical machine. You know, they had the this gold, I don't know, it made me think about a submarine, you know, like how you would look through the periscope. Like periscope, yeah. Yeah, except, you know, out of this gold periscope came all these things that would hurt you. There was a knife blade. There were projectiles, you know, and it was an actor actually jumping around all of these hazards and shooting at it. And it was a big deal because that had to be practical in 1984. That machine and all of its movements were actually happening. They didn't have, you know, the benefit that we have now of CGI. No. And it even goes into the design of the ships and, and just things that, you know, the people knew. I mean, the people that built these spaceships were very smart, practical builders. They knew what they could use to trick our eyes into seeing something grand the way they painted it the way they they sculpted it you know they just had these incredible crews and david lynch said to one of the people on the production design team it's like a lost art you know and it's so happy that you're here it adds so much yeah you know i mean that was so amazing because you watch the movie and then we watched a lot of features and got to see you know how much background was put into so many different things with this. We did the same thing with the 2021 version as well, but like with the 1984, you have all these people that are using like really old kind of tricks and different things. And it was just really amazing that they were able to do this and make it look so real. Yeah. They had such a hard time. They talked about with making the sandworms come to life. They said they would end up with something that was too phallic. Yeah. Or <laughs> Raffaella de Laurentiis is so funny. Yeah. She so. was like, they look like big turds. 
like they and my joke was was like the entire planet of Arrakis is just like a big kitty litter box. <laughs> the sandworm looking like a turd, she says. <clears throat> Did oh, she man. say huge turds or big turds? I can't uh, remember. I can't remember, but it was hilarious that she said turds. Yeah. Regardless. If you don't think turd is a funny word, I don't know what's what's wrong with you. <laughs> she also dispelled a rumor as well that there was a four-hour cut of Dune somewhere. She said that the assembly cut was four hours, and that's just literally, you know, everything that they had. That doesn't mean that it was all necessarily usable. And there were some, you know, deleted scenes that we saw on the disc, but in no way did that bring it up to four hours. I think that the 1984 film is around two hours and 17 minutes, which is incredible if you think about it, because this is something where, you know, they really went for it. They, they really tried to stuff this whole story in there. And this story is so dense that even in the 2021 film, where, where they have more room, there are times where you need to process it. I mean, yeah. you need to do prep work. Like, I needed the book. And, like, I feel so happy now. I feel like, okay, I'm cool now. I understand the movie. Like, <laughs> And I needed the book. I needed to do this research. And even with this, I feel inadequate. I'm like, I need to know more. You're you know? not always a book guy either. So no. this is kind of like, this one is a big one for you to say, I feel like I had to really know the book. Yeah. It, it's something where there's just so much information. And there are so many sequels that, that go beyond this book. Yeah, I mean, will Massive. I will I go there? I just don't know. Um, we finished the first book. I'm like, well, should I go read the second book? I'm like, well, let me flush some of the dune out of my system first. Because <laughs> I'm just like, feel like I've been soaking in it, like hearkening in the oil. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's a bad thing, but it's kind of overwhelming. It's yeah. like the same kind of thing I feel, you know, when... Uh, was really into Game of Thrones and I was like reading the books and watching the show and thinking about, you know, all this different stuff with it. It's fun and it's exciting, but it's almost like too intense. Like it's so much information. It's hard to keep a handle on it. I felt like we were studying for the bar exam. <laughs> yeah. So let's kind of focus our attention for the rest of the show on the 2021 film. Uh, and the things that we really enjoyed about that, uh, because we're really excited about the the second part of this coming up next year, um, and we watched we've watched this like three times at least since it came out. So this is definitely comfort film status for us. Yeah, I, I mean it's something where it's just so engrossing, and again, finally being able to understand it. Yeah. Well, and the, the the vision that Denis Villeneuve has is really, really impressive. And the way that he's able to carry it out, I just think is great. Like, I, I think I don't have a lot of critique about this movie because I just think it's so good. Yeah. I, I mean, the scope of this film is what's so impressive. It's so big. Yeah. Everything. Like, the production design in general is mm -hmm. huge. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, it was cool because we watched a lot of the kind of background info on the movie. Tons of special features on the 4K Blu-ray disc. And uh, the production design was particularly impressive to me because they built, like, these huge monster sets... Um, and the actors were just saying, like, it wasn't very hard for them in a way because they're in this huge, you know, space. 
that really makes it feel real to them. And everything looked so cool and so good. Um, I just thought that was super impressive. Yeah, because we were watching this behind-the-scenes footage, and they would walk onto these sets, and you were like, oh, they actually look like they do in the film. Yeah. And there was just so much thought that went into all of the design. Yeah. When we saw Paul's bedroom, and we saw that it was like his bed looked like almost he was in a vice with the way that they had it built. And it was like the crushing weight that he felt. Yeah. You know, the responsibility, all the things coming at him. Well, yeah, and all the buildings and the rooms and everything is like so big. And these people are so small. Yeah. In comparison, it really just shows you like this power that like the environment has over the people. Mm-hmm. And the details that they have in the production design persist into everything. Like, we watched the whole thing on the ornithopter, which is really interesting. Um, they built this thing. The, the guy who drew it, like, went through all these versions. And basically, the idea was to make it kind of like a combination of, like, a hummingbird or... Um, a dragonfly and a dragonfly is what I think of the most with it but it's like kind of like a helicopter but it has wings like a dragonfly that kind of just flutter and then they can kind of fold back against the housing of the of the ornithopter to kind of go into these dives and have a lot of maneuverability Um, and it's really cool looking to the point where I really never thought about the fact that these things aren't really flying in the air. Hmm. So when we're watching the behind the scenes and I just see like the body of the ornithopter without the wings because they were added in CGI, I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, wait. So, (laughs) you know, they were just sitting in this thing that was kind of lifted up on a platform, not actually in the air. And that was kind of different to me mentally. Because in my head, I kind of never questioned this thing. Well, the ornithopter is something that's the idea has been around for a very long time. And Leonardo da Vinci actually took this idea that people had of just, you know, us having wings and flapping enough, you know, that we could fly. And he took it and put it into a machine where a person would lay flat and then they would have, you know, these these wings you know that they would they would fly with so it's a design that that's been around for a long time and i i know it's supposed to be a bird but for me in the film what i see is a dragonfly yeah i definitely see a dragonfly and it's incredible you know because those wings move so fast and it's not anything i had thought of before you know there was um a cartoon when I was younger called Mask, and it actually had some type of bug helicopter like this. That's cool. Yeah, I can't re- Maybe it was Mask. Maybe it was another 80s cartoon. I mean, we were so lucky with all those cartoons <laughs> yeah. and the imagination. But I had some kind of toy that was like that. And I also remember having an action figure that had, you know, like those see-through wings. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So I remember something like that too. Like they're kind of rubbery 
Yeah, I'm not sure what that was. That's funny. See, okay, so you saw it. So I'm not, I'm not nuts. That makes no. me happy. I mean, there were these other doll type of things that girls had, where it would like fly up in the air and then like flutter back down. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what those were called, but it was a cool thing too. Yeah, I mean, just so much imagination. Yeah, and that's the biggest thing in this film. Well, and I think that like the the mythology of the Dune book is that computer knowledge or computer thought is not really allowed. So they have mentats, which are like human computers, but most like all ideas come from people. So it is more of like these creative ideas that are probably less practical, but they're more like imagined and, and, and creative. And I think that's cool. Like that's the kind of things I'm excited to see. Me too. I, I mean, mean, engineering has its place. I'm not crapping on engineering. I'm very proud of the accomplishments that people make um, through engineering. But I also love, like, just these fanciful, imaginative ideas that people have, too. Yeah. I, I mean, this really has a fairy tale quality to it. Definitely. With, you know, all of these planets that there's so much detail. I would watch documentaries on these planets. I would, too. I mean, that's the funny thing. Like, I am saying, like, I've learned too much about Dune. (laughs) But at the same time, I was thrilled to watch all these behind-the-scenes things and just hear other people thinking and talking about this book and, like, you know, being inspired by it. And that's very clearly, you know, the passion that Denis Villeneuve has for this book is what translated to the movie. Similarly, Hans Zimmer, who scored the movie, clearly had this huge love for the source material. Um, Denis Villeneuve was talking about when he asked Hans Zimmer to do it, and Hans Zimmer's like, of course I've heard of it. It's my favorite book, and he had always dreamed of scoring it. So it was like a dream come true for him to be able to do it. And the amount of work he put into it was amazing. He created new instruments, you know. He has just this really special score for this, and it it makes it very unique. I mean, sorry I'm blabbing on, but, like, the sound in general in this movie is very unique. When we first saw it, we were at the theater, and unfortunately we had this experience where the sound was turned up so high that it actually was, like, hurting my ears. I had to, like, go to the car and get, like, headphones to plug my ears with because it was, like, too loud and I couldn't really even enjoy it. But because the sounds in this movie are so intricate and layered that you really have to hear it. So I'm super happy that I've seen it at home now and heard it at home because this is a very, like, aurally rich movie. Um, we watched some behind the scenes about the guys who do the effects part of the sound. And they did such creative stuff to get these noises. Like one of the guys went out into the desert and like actually put microphones into the sand to hear what it would sound like. And what they found was that it had this really unique sound and that sometimes if like the humidity level was right, it almost made like a groaning sound like whales, which also works with like the sandworms, again, um, being kind of whales in the desert type of an animal. It was just really amazing to me. 
you know, the creative levels that people got to with this movie, with trying to, to dramatize the mythology of the book. I think that's fantastic, and I love it. Well, Hans Zimmer also said that it was a science fiction film, and he didn't want it to sound like anything else that people have heard. And so he went ahead, and he even created new instruments. Yeah. And they brought in singers to sing this otherworldly score. We actually got to see them in the studio. And he also talked about the different characters, the different houses, having a, a theme, an individual theme. Yeah. But when they were together, those themes could interlock into a bigger score. I mean, there was so much detail in this. It was like a, a beautiful clock, you know? It's just like this precision that you would see in a, in a watchmaker. Where I, I can't think of something small and delicate enough to describe the precision that was in this. And Hans Zimmer just acted like it was another day at work. He yeah. didn't have any attitude. He was just thrilled to be a part of his favorite book come to life. Yeah, and like the sound effects and music were married together like so well Yeah, that like they blend into each other and like one thing feels like the other thing. I just really, I think it's a real huge achievement. And another interesting point on the sound is um, that they were trying to come up with what the sound, the, the sandworms, <laughs> the sandworms would sound like. And they were like, it can't be like anything else. And they came up with this idea that they would kind of have the same sound that the thumpers have. So the thumper is like this thing, this kind of little machine that you put in to draw a sandworm to you. And it just kind of makes a rhythmic thump, thump, thump sound. And when the sandworms come up to Paul and Jessica and they're just looking at, you know, sandworms kind of like eyeballing them, it starts making this kind of thump sound that is, it, it makes it seem like, you know, they almost were using the thumper as a bird call with, with the sandworm. And I thought that was so smart and cool. You know, and, and they just talk about the rhythm being such a part of this movie and that the rhythm is inherent in the movie because rhythm is what draws the sandworms. You know, you have to like walk without rhythm to not draw them and things like that. So that was why sound became so important in this movie. And I just think, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this that has such a soundscape that's so individual and unique. No, I've never heard anything like this. And the level of detail in this entire production, unheard of. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that they actually had the editor on site so that they could work together to find out what the shots would be and how they would be cut, you know, to, to make the most of their time, to save money, to get the absolute best product. You know, I, I mean, going back to the sandworms, one thing I do want to bring up that makes me laugh is Kynes. She's actually outside, and this is when uh, Paul and Lady Jessica have escaped. Yeah. Okay, so she's out alone in the desert, and she has a thumper, 
and she's calling a sandworm because she's just going to hitch a ride <laughs> on the sandworm, you know? It's just like, it's like the Uber of the time, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's so great. It's so great. And it's, you know, the riding of the sandworms, you know, we get and, and just a fleeting shot at the end of the film. But that's, you know, a huge part of the book. And I'm sure the next film is going to feature a lot more of that. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's, it's so... To, yeah. I Yeah, I can't wait for that. Because the worms are my favorite character. Yeah, I fully agree. Well, and that's why um, Zendaya's character, Chani, says this is only the beginning. Yeah. At the end of the movie, which is kind of funny and great. But yeah, I mean, the worms are the heart of the movie, we can't have spice without them, and we can't have a movie without spice. Nope. You know, it's it's super important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in a huge oversight, we have barely talked about Duncan Idaho. Oh, yeah. Or Gurney Halleck. Yep. So far in this movie. Um, in fact, it's difficult because there are just so many characters and you're just trying to talk about all of them. But you can't get to everybody. But I, I just don't think there's any way to talk about Dune without talking about the improbably named Duncan Idaho uh, and, and Gurney Halleck as well, um, which is Jason Momoa and Josh Brolin, respectively. And one of the things that I know you really loved about both of those characters was their fight scenes. Yeah, the fight scenes. Wow. Close quarters combat. And we got to learn a lot more about that through the special features. Yeah. They had an interview with Roger Yuan, the fight coordinator, and he talked about the Atreides system of fighting. And he actually based it on Kali. So Kali, what is that? It's an ancient Filipino fighting system referring to the hand and body motion with the blade and the characteristic of it being secret knowledge only taught within the family to protect against oppressors, you know? So it's like, it's so specific. And then he goes on to say that it's actually a specific form of Kali called Balintawak. And that is, you know, very short movements because the blades are shorter, you know? So it adapts to that type of weaponry. I mean, what you know and it looks amazing in this because a lot of the combat or at least some of the combat is kind of close quarter combat mm -hmm. the people are in these small rooms just fighting like one-on-one -on -one, or like duncan idaho is fighting off a whole bunch of dudes um and it's it's sword play which you always love and everything of course um, and it, it looks really cool. And Brolin and Momoa are both very good at this. And then I guess, um, Timothy Chalamet was also trained in dancing. Yeah. So he's really good at, at being able to kind of learn these movements as well. So seeing all of these guys doing these fight scenes is kind of amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a performance. When you see the Duncan Idaho, Jason Momoa scene, he takes on so many people. Yeah. And you can imagine the practice that went into that. And when you're this close with a person, with anything, a stick, a weapon, whatever you have, I mean, oof. I mean, and they're quick. 
Their yeah. movements are very fast. When you see Josh Brolin with that blade, the way he flips it around, oh, yeah. then you see Timothy Chalamet, same thing. I mean, they're fighting with their fists, their knives, their entire bodies. You know, these are, are battles that are... I don't, I don't even know what to say. It, it's just, they're so raw. Yeah, and there is kind of like a grace and a dance element to the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the speed with which these people are doing things. And it isn't due to the editing. I mean, sometimes you'll watch fight scenes and they look really fast and, and energetic because they have like very quick editing, quick shots. Yeah. But in these, it's not necessarily that they have quick shots, but that the people are actually moving at top speed, you know, while they're doing these fights. And it looks super cool. Like, I, I don't think I've seen a lot of things like this either. No. And I mean, that was the first three days for Timothy Chalamet. That was the first three days for Timothy Chalamet. He was doing that scene in the training room with Josh Brolin. And the director said that with the fighting, it was a cross between martial arts and fencing. Huh. Yeah. I definitely see that in that scene. Because, mm -hmm. like you said, they are using, like, their whole bodies. Yeah. They also have swords and knives. But they use them in, like, different ways. Like, um, you know, at first, Timothy Chalamet's character, Paul, doesn't really want to get into that fight. Yeah. Because he's not in the mood, he tells Gurney. And Gurney gets really pissed. Mm -hmm. And so it's like... You know, you're not going to be in the mood just because somebody attacks you. You know, you have to fight back. And so once they kind of have scuffled a bit, Paul, like, flips the knives inward, you know, so he's kind of more like holding them, like, in a stabbing motion rather than in a sword motion. So, you know, it's really cool. I just think it looks awesome. And you can clearly see how much work was put into it. And listening to this Roger Yuan talk about it was was pretty amazing. Yeah, you can tell that this is a person that knows all of the fight techniques out there. He would be able to tell you anything. Yeah. You know, like you have people that love sports. I bet you he'd be able to tell you just from a punch. You know, like, oh, that's the Southpaw uh, West Palm Beach style. <laughs> you know, like, I have a feeling that this is, is that is that kind of guy. And also he talked about how he worked with the performers. He would try to find an inroad. Like with Timothy Chalamet, you know, there was dance background. You know, let's say you had a basketball background, whatever it was. He said he would try to work with the person with the present experience that they had. And then once they kind of got them moving, he would channel it then more into the actual fight moves. Yeah, I think that was... <laughs> One of the things Josh Brolin was saying was that he's more of like a gruff kind of style fighter, like a silverback. <laughs> we got a good laugh out of that. Yeah. But they managed to make him seem graceful and, and things too. So pretty amazing job. And I do think that makes this movie stick out because the ability of Paul to fight is like one of the big things for him. Mm -hmm. He ends up teaching fighting to uh, the Fremen which we'll see, you know, going forward. Um, and the reason that he gets in with the Fremen is because of his ability to do the one-on-one -on -one fight with Jameis. Right. Because it's like kind of like a fight to the death challenge duel type thing. And because of all his training and his background, 
and not just by Gurney and his like fighting skills that he's learned because he's a son of a noble family. He also has the Bene Gesserit training from his mother, which enables him to have that intuition to kind of know what the next move is from the other person. And those con that combination of abilities is kind of what makes Paul part of the special chosen. Well, that's part of his chosen one kind of characteristics. Yeah. And it's nice that we get to see Lady Jessica in action. Yes. Because you know? she also can fight in the weirding way. Right. When they meet up with the Fremen, and it's not very pleasant at first, you know, and she gets the drop on Stilgar. Also a great character who we haven't mentioned. Nope. Stilgar is the leader of the Fremen, played by Javier Bardem, looking like Anthony Quinn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he's excellent. And he'll definitely be in, the, in Dune 2 more. So I'm really looking forward to that. Because I loved his appearance in this film. Like, when he first comes in, it's to meet Leto, who's played by Oscar Isaac. Um, that's Paul's father, who's in charge of Arrakis, you know, now. And Duncan has tried, has been trying to make inroads with the Fremen. And Stilgar comes in to kind of have this meeting. Because the Fremen do not trust the Atreides any more than they trust the Harkonnen. Yeah, they just um, see it as a new oppressor. Yeah, they just, that, exactly. I mean, that's what's said at the very beginning of the film. Um, so Stilgar comes in and, you know, of course everybody's on alert that they think this guy's going to attack. And then he spits on the table <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, ah, you know, like freaking out. But then Duncan kind of explains, like he quickly kind of makes them realize that Stilgar is sharing his moisture with them, which in this environment is like actually a huge sign of respect to give someone your spit is like, you know, sharing the most precious thing that you have. Um, so then Leto like spits on the table and I don't know if it was purposeful or not, but Oscar Isaac's spitting is so poor in comparison. Like Stilgar just spits right on the table. Uh, Oscar Isaac's Leto kind of sprays spit onto the table <laughs> Um, and it could have been on purpose because, you know, he's just not used to just spitting as part of his diplomatic work. But I thought that was really funny and really well done. It was a great scene. Yeah, it, it was fantastic because Stilgar came in down to business. You know, there was no time to fool around. They talked about exactly what they needed to talk about. And then he left. Yeah. And that was it. And he made such an impression on you that when you saw him later in the film, you're like, oh, great. We're back with this guy. Yeah, exactly. He, he was awesome. We should also mention that Jameis is Dr. Mabenga in Strange New Worlds. Oh, yes. Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which I'm loving. Same here. Um, Dr. Mabenga uh, is played by, I will probably kill this name, like I've killed Denis Villeneuve, Villeneuve and all the other names of people. You've been helping me out. I mean, I'm... <laughs> I'm trying. I mean, we've had a lot of takes here of some of the names. That's Babs Olusamakun is a he is Dr. Mabinga and he is Jameis in this. And it made me really sad that Paul's visions were not true of him, you know, kind of learning from Jameis because I thought I think that this actor is amazing and I was really excited to see more of him and then he gets killed. <laughs> so I was like, Well damn it. 
That's terrible. It's such a trick because Paul sees him and he's a friend. He's a guide. He's leading him through the desert on what to do. Yeah. And then when he finally sees him in the flesh, he wants to kill him. Yeah. I mean, his, and you can kind of understand Jameis's point of view too, because he feels that Stilgar is kind of too easy with switching to right, to trusting these people. And he doesn't believe that they should. Um, he doesn't believe that Jessica is trustworthy. I mean, that that that's going around a lot in the book. Oh, yeah. Oh, Especially yeah. Um, How, Howitt and Gurney both um, kind of think that she, but she's the one who betrayed Leto. And, you know, we know that it was Dr. Yue, but other people don't. And that kind of becomes a big point of contention in the second half of the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Jessica for me is kind of one of the most interesting characters because she does have this Benny Gesserit background, which makes her powerful, but also somewhat untrustworthy to other characters. She's a Harkonnen as we find out. She's pregnant again, this time with a daughter, we find out because Paul understands this after one of his trippy spice days. <laughs> um, yeah, and, you know, she has all of these skills and all of this ability, but she's also got a lot of gumption. Like, she went against the Bene Gesserit orders and had a son instead of a daughter. Um, because, you know, and they're like, oh, you thought you could be the mother of the Kwisatz Haderach? And she's like, well... Am I not? You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and Rebecca Ferguson is really awesome in this part. And Francesca Annas was really awesome in this part in the 1984 movie. So I'm, in, I'm excited to see more of Jessica as well. It's cool. They don't have a lot of female characters in this. But the ones that they do have are pretty phenomenal. And I also do personally love the switch to female for the kinds character same here yeah we also are not going to have any more piter yes oh my god we didn't talk about piter nope piter is baron harkonnen's right hand man and actually bringing us back to something we've talked about jesus christ superstar um the baron and piter are very much like Caiaphas and Annas, respectively. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And so, you know, Piter is, is one of those characters that you love to hate because he's just so slimy. You yes. know, he just, you know, he does not in any way have any physical imposition. No. But, he but just, he's smart. Right. I mean, and he's a mentat, so he's like this human computer guy, although he has a lot of emotions to... Uh, and he and I guess like we saw a little bit of background on this um, with the actor David again I'm gonna slaughter it David Dastalmachian um, maybe <laughs> <laughs> um, where he was talking about you know this guy being kind of turned by the Harkonnen um, and and kind of being you know bent in a way because he's working with these people. And in the book, he was a really weird character. Mm -hmm. And then in the 84 movie, he was played by Brad DeReef, who we love in yeah. everything always. 
Right. Um, starting in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and pretty much continuing into whatever he did yesterday. Um, <laughs> we just think the guy's brilliant and, and really versatile. And, sure. and he did a great job with Piter. Um, although I was thrown off by the eyebrows. And the 1984, the, the 1984 had some really weird choices with costume and makeup. And the Mentat guys had, like, these weird red mouths, but it wasn't like, I don't know, it looked like they ate too many strawberries and smashed them around their mouth. And it looked like, or maybe they had herpes. Like, I wasn't really <laughs> sure what was going on. And then they had these massive brush-looking eyebrows. They were kind of, like, uh, distracting. Like, every time they were on, I was just like, look at those eyebrows. Like, I didn't even know what they were talking about. I was just thinking about their eyebrows. It was Freddie Jones as, as Howitt and Darif as Piter. I was just like, eyebrows, eyebrows, eyebrows. In this, and actually, <laughs> in this movie, Piter has no eyebrows. <laughs> so they went the complete other direction. They're like, he had too many eyebrows in the first movie. Now we're going to have no eyebrows. It's ridiculous. Got to even it out. I guess so. It's all about balance. Hmm. So I know there's probably about four trillion other things we could talk about in this film, book, whatever we're doing with <laughs> Dune here. Um, because it is such a rich like well of information and data and ideas which is something that I know I love, and I think you love it too, when there's just so many ideas to talk about that, like, you can't even pick one out. But I think that we've covered all of the main points that I wanted to hit. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about before you wrap up? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's just so much. Yeah. There's just so much. I... I'm glad we did, like, a greatest character's hits here at the end and didn't forget anyone, I hope. I have a feeling like, you know, in a few hours we're going to be like, oh, you know, yeah, but it's, hey, so. it's the way it goes. But, like, you know, Dune 2's coming and right. we'll catch him in Dune 2. Right. Yeah. We'll be back. Well, thank you all for listening this week uh, and thank you for listening to our Sun and Sand series. I hope you enjoyed it and felt summery and, and sweaty from listening, <laughs> especially today with our Sandy uh, episode on Dune. Uh, we will wrap up with this one, uh, and we kind of don't know where we're headed next, but we hope you're going to come with us on wherever that journey is going to lead, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us for Double Dune, and stay comfy. Stay comfy.